0: What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more Half-Arts History. This week on The Agenda, you're going to be having a chat about the Lafitte Brothers. This uh, this These were a pair of French pirates. Uh, they operated uh, in and around Louisiana um, in the United States, the, co- the other coast of the Gulf of Mexico. In the early 19th century, absolutely fascinating pair, these two blokes. They really were. Jean and Pierre were their names. They were privateers. They were smugglers, political operatives, businessmen, spies, all around rogues, really. But they led very interesting lives. Um, their stories are, are steeped in legend, which which means that it's a little tricky to sort of separate the truth from the fiction when writing about. or when talking about these guys. they've been um, They've been written about extensively over the years, but some writers obviously you know, haven't let the truth get in the way of a good story. So keep that in mind as we get through this episode. I've done everything that I can to verify the stuff that I'm going to talk about and tell you today. but uh, you know with a couple of sort of Robin Hood like figures uh, such as these two, uh, you know the, you know the, the charming outlaw, the lovable rogue always makes the truth a little uh, a little tricky here. Anyway, this topic suggestion came to us from uh, Jordan Selesnik, who uh, is himself from Louisiana, and uh, he tells stories about the Lafitte brothers as, as a tour guide in New Orleans. So thanks so much, Jordo, for the suggestion. It was great to read about these two. Um, and of course, it's more, it's more of the half hour history content that you crave. A bit of piracy, a bit of naval history, ships smuggling, battles, all the rest of it, although I will warn you now, Very light on mutiny, I have to say that. Very, very light on mutiny this week. So, you know, there's not going to be surprise mutiny halfway through the episode. I just want to put you, you know, put you at ease there so you're not thinking about that. And uh, on a more serious note, you know, we're going to have some fun today, have a bit of a giggle about these two. But um, on a more serious note, these two, uh, I'm I'm afraid to say these two were engaged in, in a bit of slavery, and the foul profits that were wrought from the sale of the enslaved. So, you know, look, it's all right being a lovable rogue, mate, but there are limits. And unfortunately, the, uh, the Lafitte brothers crossed that line well and truly. They, they did turn very tidy profits uh, at the slave markets as well. So, you know, I, I guess a, a slightly more serious air to two blokes who otherwise, you know, very heavily romanticised um, men in, uh, you know, in the history of piracy or whatever else. Anyway, they did have a lot of fingers and a lot of pies, smuggling, trading, capturing ships and their cargoes, and surprisingly also helping the US government, which hounded them for years, helped them to uh, win a battle or two. So very, very interesting and very, uh, you know, sort of um, complicated uh, figures, the Lafitte brothers here. A lot to get across as ever. So let's go tell it. We'll kick off the story of Jean and Pierre Lafitte, the uh, 19th, 19th century pirate brothers. Here we go. We're going all the way back, going all the way back here to, well, actually, I mean, yeah, not... Not exactly sure. Reliable details on the origins of these two blokes are are very scarce indeed, very scarce indeed. So much so, we're not exactly sure when or even exactly where they were born. Um, It was around 1770 or 1780 between those years, roughly, is when we estimate the two of them were born. But we can't get much more exact than that, I'm afraid. Pierre was the elder brother, but again, we don't know exactly by how much, you know, we don't know exact years or ages. And as for where they were born, it might have been France, might have been born in France. Uh, Jean claimed that uh, they were born in Bordeaux as the descendant of uh, Jewish conversos from Spain. But conversely, Pierre claimed to be born in Bayonne, while there are actual documents from the time that indicate that they might have been born in Spain or even across the Atlantic in the US or in Saint-Domingue, which is uh, modern-day Haiti these days. So no idea. No idea. What's certain is that they were definitely of French uh, origin somewhere along the line, as French was their native tongue throughout their entire lives. Um, Although, of course, they went on to learn and speak both English and Spanish as well. But um, it's pretty clear the two of them you know, even if we don't have the, the, the clearest picture of their exact origins, we do know that during their upbringing as, as, as little tackers, they went to sea very early. Uh, there are indications their dad was either a merchant or a, or a trader of some kind on the sea and, and sail around, you know, making deals, whatever else. So the youngsters, uh, you know, they may have been cutting about in ships with their dad, or maybe as they got a bit older, they, they put to sea themselves. Whatever the case, by the turn of the 19th century, by the time we get to, the, you know, the 1800 or so, the two of them They've established themselves as men of the sea in what is today New Orleans, Louisiana, in the United States now, before 1803, of course, this area belonged to France or it belonged to Spain, depending on exactly who and exactly when you ask. Asked, but um, uh, it went on to be sold as part, of course, of the Louisiana Purchase in uh, in 1803. And when the purchase went through, we're relatively sure that the Lafitte brothers were operating some kind of naval naval based business, perhaps with uh, Jean as a ship's captain out of uh, out of New Orleans and its its, its busy port there. But the real trouble for the brothers began a couple of years after the purchase. The real trouble began in 1808. Uh, The US started to enforce the Embargo Act of 1807. This was an act that banned American ships from docking in foreign ports and it slapped an embargo on goods being brought into the state so it was a, it was a heavily it was a, it was a protectionist measure that was designed to uh, you know to to heavily regulate trade in the young nation and it really really wasn't ideal for merchants and traders in louisiana especially those in new orleans because they heavily relied on maritime trade from Caribbean islands. So this is where the story of the Lafitte brothers kicks off, because due to this embargo act, they went from a pair of simple naval merchants to smugglers and pirates in contravention of this newly enforced embargo act that was, you know, really ripping the guts out of, um, out of, out of the, the merchant houses of uh, of New Orleans. Now, I want to point out before we get into the stories of, you know, piracy on the high seas, I want to point out here, this is almost 100 years after what's popularly considered the golden age of piracy, most of the pirates we talked about even on on, on this podcast, whether it's, you know, Calico, Jack, and Bonnie Mary, Reed, episode 49 there, or, or the bloke who got bored of, of, of being a gentleman and ran away to become a pirate, Steve Bonnet, episode 57. All of these people were active in the early 18th century. This is nearly a century before the, the Lafitte brothers, you know. So th- these are pirates who are running, you, you know, the, the, the brothers here, the, the brother we're talking about here, they're pirates that are running around at the time of Napoleon, you know, the, the, the powdered wings are, wigs are on the way out, Beethoven's kicking about writing, writing his symphonies, the, the internal combustion engine has just been invented. So a very, very different time period from the days of, you know, Blackbeard and uh, and all the rest of them. So anyway... This embargo, right? This embargo is on imported goods. The Lafitte brothers, none too pleased about this. They're wanting, they're wanting, uh, you know, the, the 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 free trading of uh, of goods in and out of these uh, in and out of these harbors. And so they decide to take action. They decide to stop playing by the rules themselves. They are going to bring goods into the into into the United States, into Louisiana by hook or by bloody crook. Don't you even worry about it. So. They start cruising around looking for a place that they can set up a base of operations for a bit of good old-fashioned smuggling. They're looking to get uh, get the goods past customs officials by setting up a smuggler's haven little port. And they settle on Barataria Bay, which is to the south of the city. It's the perfect location for a racket like this, let me tell you. Barataria Bay, it's found uh, behind a narrow sea pas- uh, passage between some barrier islands. So it's easy to sneak in and sneak out of and very difficult for the U.S. Navy to access as a result. Now, the nearest U.S. naval base is ages away. And so the bay it offers a prime spot for the you know the sneaky is the sneaky smuggler ships to furtively sail in and drop off their hot property. Um and, and on top of this, I mean, despite, you know, the, the fact that the new US naval base is ages away, even if it weren't, the US Navy was not particularly powerful at this point in history. The US is a young nation, of course. It's a very small fry in international terms. Its navy is dwarfed by the European powers. So the brothers really didn't have too much to worry about. The rinky-dink state of the US Navy wasn't much of a threat to them or their operation at this stage. And so they set up shop in in, in Barataria Bay, and they they, they divide the labor, labor between the two of them. Jean remained behind in Barataria. And, uh, and he oversaw the imports as they were delivered from these uh, from these smuggling ships, you know, coming in off the sea. And Pierre went back to New Orleans and he received clandestine deliveries from Barataria, which he would then sell at the market in, in New Orleans, you know, under the guise of, of legitimacy, under, under the veneer of, uh, of legality here. So privateers laden with valuable cargoes, they heard about this smuggler's outpost off in the, you know, in the Louisiana bayous there in Barataria Bay. And so they would sail there, and they would unload under the supervision of Jean, and he would then parcel out this cargo into smaller vessels, you know, barges and whatever. And then they would secretly sail through, uh, you know, through routes through the uh, the bayous to New Orleans and avoid the customs officials who would be waiting at the harbor. They could evade uh, detection by bringing uh, in large cargoes that have been parcelled up into smaller shipments and put onto barges that would evade uh, the attention of the customs officials. And doing this was an extremely lucrative business. Pierre would receive these small shipments, he'd store them in warehouses and then carefully on sell them bit by bit here and there on the open market. Again, making these embargoed goods seems like seem like they were actually there legally. And in doing so, right the, the the embargo Act was being almost completely contravened and circumvented by these uh, these pair by this pair of brothers. All of these embargoed goods were being successfully smuggled into the US and the customers officials had no idea or to begin with at least. And as I say, very very lucrative, extremely lucrative. Barrataria quickly became a bustling port it attracted ships and crews looking for work. Hopeful sailors would go to Barataria that work in the warehouses, there packing and unpacking stuff in the hopes of joining a privateer crew. And so this small smuggling outpost, it grew in wealth, it grew in prosperity. And of course, you know, I said that the U.S. customs officials weren't aware of it to begin with. But after a while, Barataria grew in infamy as well, of course, because people knew that the Embargo Act was being broken. These these. Uh, You know the the contraband was being smuggled in somehow, and uh, as stories spread of this smuggler's haven, uh, people people figured out very quickly that uh, you know something something a little funny, a little little silly was going on uh, somewhere in the uh, in the swamps in in the bayous to the south there. But this extremely lucrative smuggling business wasn't enough. For the Lafitte brothers, they set their sights even higher. If you believe it, they're making money hand over fist. You've got pirates and and privateers and and smugglers all throughout the Gulf of Mexico who were used to coming into New Orleans as one of the you know as a busy bustling harbor. You You've got all these blokes who are wanting to bring in inter- international cargoes. They can't do it legal anymore. They're all going to Barataria, right? They're all going to Barataria, mate. And they're bringing with them the the wealth and the prosperity that comes with the you know with the merchant trade. And uh, Jean and Pierre are just. Skimming off the top as, as brokers, they're able to, to bring in a, a rich harvest of, of wealth as they oversee this entire operation. But it isn't enough for them. It's not enough. They weren't satisfied with just being middlemen, they weren't satisfied with just being the brokers overseeing this smuggling. They wanted to get in on the action themselves. They wanted a slice of the excitement themselves. They wanted to get out there and, and, and seize rich cargoes in their own right, you know, rather than just on selling other people's. And so, to that end, in 1812 they use some of the vast profits they've made here to buy themselves a ship of their own and here is where we go from smuggling to actual factual piracy because this ship did not have an official commission from any nation it was essentially unregistered and therefore as an unregistered pirate uh, as an unregistered ship it was effectively a pirate vessel it was a pirate vessel they hired a captain the brothers hired a captain and sent the ship off to attack and plunder other ships Again, there's no official commission, so it can attack basically anyone and anything. And this is what this ship goes off and does. Uh, you know, under the under the sponsorship, under the keen eye of the Lafitte brothers. And I'll tell you this: it was very, very successful in doing so. This uh, this ship went out and brought in rich cargoes and great wealth to the Lafitte brothers. It certainly was a good investment. Although some of the time, some of the cargoes that were plundered by this ship were uh, were were certainly, you know less uh, able to be romanticized in the long view of history because, for example, in 1813, this ship captured a Spanish schooner that was loaded with slaves. And these slaves were then sold by the brothers and that earned them, I mean, a lot of money, but also earned them the much less forgivable title of slavers to go along with being smugglers and pirates and lovable rogues and all the other romanticized ones. It's no good. It really is no good. But this is the reality of the situation. We we love to romanticise people like Jean and Pierre Lafitte. We love to look at blokes like this who you know were were, were outlaws and, and and whatever else. Look at their story and 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 make them make them in sort of large, make them into the larger than life figures here. But slavery is slavery, and they can't walk that one back. We're not going to romanticise this part of their careers. They made a lot of money off of this slave ship. They sold both the slaves aboard it, as well as outfitting the ship as another pirate vessel and growing their fleet. But uh, the the judgment of history stands upon them, and uh, you know while we can, I guess, forgive the uh, the plundering of, of of loot and cargo and uh, and, and goods, once uh, once you uh, you can't really unring the bell of. Uh, of having got into, uh, into slaving, so a pretty despicable stain on the um, on the historical reputation of these two in engaging in uh, in activities like this. Anyway, not long after this captured slave ship was refitted, it was sent out to uh, to terrorise the wave, uh, waves once more, and it also managed to do a good job. Captured a, a, a other other trade vessels and schooners filled with valuable goods, which the brothers sold but after having captured a, a um a, and and you know taken a schooner as, a certain schooner as a prize right this uh unlike the slave ship this ship wasn't appropriate for piracy the uh the Lafitte brothers weren't able to refit it and add it to their fleet. So do you know what they did? That once they captured this ship that was, again, laden with treasure, whatever else, they, they they pillaged all the treasure. They took all that off them as well. But then with the ship, they just gave it back to the former crew. They gave it back to the former captain, former crew, and and, and sent them on their way. This wasn't the last time they would do this either. Um, this is one of the reasons that these two are romanticized in the way they are. Um, they often behave like this. They often behave like, you know, these gentlemen pirates. Once again, they were known to treat the crews they captured very well, often return their plundered ships to them afterwards. I mean, none of this excuses the slavery, of course, but it's still very interesting to see that they, uh, again, were, were sort of like the, uh, the, the Robin Hoods, of the, the Ned Kellys of the sea in, uh, in many respects in, um, you know, in this time period. As for the captured cargos, though, I mean, obviously I didn't give any, give, any, give any of them back. The captured cargos, uh, they had to get rid of them, and they had to do this in a way that ended up actually being very, very clever. Uh, check this out. So obviously now, you know, with the volume of cargo that's being brought into Barataria, they can't just send every single thing through the bayous on, on barges. And they're having to come up with uh, with new and very ingenious ways to sneak it into uh, into the New Orleans ports. Check this out. This is what they would do, right? The Lafitte brothers would load up one of their ships. They had three by now, remember? They've got three ships on the, in their fleet. Uh, they would load up a, a ship with a legitimate legal cargo that wasn't affected by the embargo, right? And they would unload it in New Orleans. So they'd, they'd, they'd fill a ship up with, you know, stuff that wasn't contraband, that was legally purchased, and they would go to, un- and they would, as, you know, appearing as respectable uh, legal traders, they would go and they would sell off this stuff, unload it in New Orleans, and 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 present all the stuff legitimately to, uh, to the customers officials. No worries. But they would then... Write up a cargo manifest for all the stuff that they were supposedly taking out with them, out from New Orleans, right? So they would write up this manifest, present it to the customs officials, and be like, this is all the stuff we've got in our ships as we're leaving, right? Because they knew that customs officers weren't very interested at all. It all they, they didn't. They hardly even looked at what was being taken out of New Orleans. Mainly, they were just policing what was being brought in. So it was very, very rare for these outgoing manifests to actually be checked. And this is how it was taken. This is very good for the Levite brothers. This is how they took advantage of it because the outgoing manifests were actually – just a list of whatever had recently been captured by another one of the Lafitte's ships. So, the ship with the fake manifest would sail to Barataria, transfer all of the ill-gotten goods into its hold from the other ship, or these ill-gotten goods, now appeared legitimate because they they were written down on an official certified manifest taken out of New Orleans, signed by a customs official that listed them all there, fair and square. Absolutely genius racket. Sail an empty ship with a full manifest out of the port, then return with the smuggled goods that matched the fake manifest, and all of a sudden, the cargo in the hold of this ship, which was plundered and looted and was, was being smuggled in, appeared legitimate. Absolute Brilliance, So, so smart. However, it wasn't to last. It was not to last because, you know, despite the fact that they, they, again, made money hand over fist with this, uh, after putting this racket into play here, the brothers became victims of their own success eventually, because obviously it wasn't exactly a secret that a lucrative smuggling ring was breaking the Embargo Act. And on top of this, since 1812, there's also been the War of 1812. Now, the War of 1812, you may have heard it before, it was a war that, began in 1812. I mean, is very well named, if nothing else. You can learn all about it in episode eight, all the way back there. Very, very silly stories come out of the War of 1812. But once this war was going on properly, right, the Lafitte brothers, they were kicking up a real stink for the US government. As it happened in, you know, countless wars before, the US was relying on privateers to attack their enemy ships, and so issued many, you know, US ships, uh, American registered ships with letters of marque. Uh, they gave they gave them to vessels who were you know, willing to go after the British and fight uh, and fight the War of eighteen twelve on their behalf. And privateering could be very lucrative for many private vessels that that, that engaged in it uh, during times of war. However, these letters of mark, uh, many of them, of course, were given to the privateers to the uh, to the private vessels that was that, that were used to sailing in and out of Lafitte's uh, port in Baratari, the, the smugglers. And so they obviously wanted to continue doing this once they were engaged as privateers by the US government. So most of the cargo that was plundered by these privateers during the War of 1812 was sold via the Lafitte smuggling operation, and this prevented the US from profiting off of the war as much as they'd expected to, because all the spoils of war were brought into a private smuggling port rather than, you know, the official US port where the customs officials could have at it. So... This meant that uh, the the United States government was not, uh, you know, they weren't able to fight the war in exactly the terms they want to at sea. But it got even worse because many of these privateers had letters of mark from both sides, from multiple nations. So these privateers are going around attacking actually anyone they want, you know, and playing both sides the hardly idea in the middle of a war. You've got American privateers that are in some case just swapping over and attacking American ships as well. So the United States government realizing that they've done a, uh, they've, they've made a bit of a meal of this with the, uh, you know, letting, letting the, uh, the Lafitte brothers get to the point that they, they've got with their uh, smuggling operation. They realize that they have to take action. The Lafitte operation, it was disrupting the war effort significantly enough that the U.S. District Attorney charged Jean Lafitte with taxation offences enough to actually have him chased down. Uh, the, a, a contingent was set, sent to uh, to the port at Barataria to arrest him. And this raid on the smuggling port was a very successful one. I'll tell you this, 40 soldiers were sent off and they managed to arrest not only both of the Lafitte brothers but also 25 smugglers in addition to seizing thousands and thousands of dollars of smugglers' goods that were held there in the warehouses. So a total victory for the United States then. They've busted up this smuggling ring, they've captured the masterminds who ran it, and now these people are going to taste justice and the war against the, uh, against the British can continue to be fought. The smugglers are duly charged, they're remanded, they were then released on bond, and soon they would face their day in court, and the long arm of the law would finally deal with them and bring the smuggling ring undone once and for all. Except that never happened, because all the smugglers who posted bail and were released just never turned up for their trials. They just left and didn't come back. I mean... This is, I guess, you know, I don't want to get too clickbaity here, but evade justice with this one simple trick. The court system hates them. You won't believe how they got away with it. The Lafitte brothers and the 25 or so other smugglers that had been arrested just turned tail and ran to the fury of the government, both federal and local. They actually just got away with it. Jean in particular, he took the piss like no other. Despite being a fugitive on the run from the law, he got himself a ship and another letter of Mark, this time from Cartagena, and he went right on plundering and smuggling. I mean, the enraged Louisiana governor, a bloke whose name was William C. C. Claiborne, he was so furious that he posted a $500 reward for the capture of Jean Lafitte. And this didn't go down too well either. This ended up backfiring on him as well, making him look like even more of a turkey after these smugglers have got away. Because a few days after this, uh, this $500 reward was posted, New Orleans was covered with new wanted posters, these ones, these new posters that were we'll put up in response to, uh, to the bounty posted on uh, Jean Lafitte, the new posters were for the governor himself, and they had a reward of $5,000 attached to them, and what's more, they were signed by Jean Lafitte himself. Now, many people are very ready to tell you that Lafitte himself did pull off this brilliant riposte. It's almost certainly not true. It was probably someone acting on his behalf or just doing it because it was very funny. But in any case, the governor was ridiculed openly. These blokes have been released on bail. They haven't come back to face justice. And after this $500 reward was uh, for, for Lafitte was posted, it was topped by a $5000 reward immediately posted in response apps i mean so so funny and whether or not lafitte was behind it what a piss take the government the go- the governor there he's got egg all over his face and this wasn't the end of it jean lafitte thumbed his nose at the governor even uh, even more after this in january 1814 he held auctions of contraband goods just outside the city of New Orleans, absurdly brazen, even by this bloke's standard, people loved it. They came and they bought stuff at significant discounts at these illegal markets. He would turn up with a with a hold full of uh, uh, contraband cargo, and just auction it off outside the city. I mean, the government did send off people to break up the auctions, and you know there were gunfights and some you know, some people were even wounded or even killed. But uh, the smugglers, again, they managed to escape. Lafitte gets away with it again. How how does he bloody do it? How does he bloody do it, mate? Governor Claiborne is that sick of the Lafitte brothers' chicanery that he now goes to the new state legislature. Right, Louisiana Louisiana only came became a state in 1812, so the state legislature is, is it's brand spanking new. And he goes to them and he tries to organize a militia to take out these pirates and these smugglers once and for all. He has had it up to the back teeth with the Lafitte brothers and their antics, and he wants to get rid of them. But here's the thing: check this out. Right, he goes to the state legislature and he says, "Listen, blokes, I need your help." And the legislature they hardly do anything at all all these lawmakers these state lawmakers right Ah, oh, they made a committee and they said oh we'll look into it yep we we'll, we we'll, we will we'll get around to doing something but they hardly lifted a finger and do you know why because many of the lawmakers and their constituents of course directly benefited from the smuggling operation and they didn't want to break it up These smugglers had broken the embargo act. They were bringing in cheap contraband goods, and people bloody loved them for it. They liked buying cheap stuff. They were fans of the auctions. They were fans of the embargo breaking, and they didn't want them to stop. Now, obviously, the merchants hated all the people who were in, all the honest merchants hated these two and what they were doing. Right, but just the ordinary people who are going about buying and selling stuff as normal, right? This, I mean, for them it didn't matter. The state legislature wasn't about to piss off most of the people that voted for them. It only gave a very perfunctory response. Not to mention that some of the lawmakers themselves benefited from the racket that the Lafitte brothers had going on. So, I mean, you just imagine, bloody Jesse Pinkman, there. He can't keep getting away with this. But it seems like Jean and Pierre Lafitte were were just untouchable. They just, they, they, you know, it seems like their luck was never gonna run, never gonna run out. However. As it turns out, their luck was running out. Luck was running out for the the Lafitte brothers, specifically for one of them, uh, for for Pierre. Because while Jean avoided punishment, Pierre ended up being indicted by a grand jury on charges of piracy brought about against him by other merchants. Remember, he was often the one who remained in uh, New Orleans and and, and looked after the shore side of the operation. And uh, as a result of these charges of piracy, right, he ended up being charged, uh, tried, and thrown in jail. Now, Jean continued the actual piracy and the smuggling out on the high seas. He operated out of Barrataria once again, even without his brother, right? Even with his brother locked up, up rather than acting as a broker in New Orleans, and he kept the Lafitte uh, operation still going. But don't forget, the War of 1812 is still raging on. The Gulf of Mexico is starting to see more and more action as a war zone, and this end up, ends up prompting quite the change of career for the Lafitte brothers. More and more British naval patrols are starting to cruise through the Gulf at this point, including along the coast of Louisiana, of course. And it wasn't long before the British as well became entangled with the Lafitte operation. You've got these privateers coming in and out of the ports there. They're attacking ships of all nations, bringing in this, the, the contraband into Barataria. And the British sat up and took interest here. A British patrol ship came across a Baratarian pirate vessel as it was returning to the smuggler's port, and it even fired upon it as it was giving chase. Now, the pirate ship, being smaller and more agile, was able to get into the bay, into water that was too shallow for the British ship to follow. But check this out. The British ship didn't turn around and uh, and, you know, and, and seek reinforcements or report what had happened. No. The British ship ran up the white flag and sent officers out in a dinghy to actually Talk to the pirates, so they wanted to, for want of a better term, parlay, Apparently, the British officers that uh, that uh, that came, a, you know, got a, got on board this dinghy and sailed across to the pirate ship. They were brought ashore. Uh, they were brought ashore at Barataria, and they asked to meet with the leader. They wanted to meet with Jean Lafitte himself. Now Jean agreed to talk to them, and I'll tell you this: it was a bloody good job that he did, because these smugglers, after having taken the uh, you know taken custody of the British officers, wanted to lynch him. They wanted to hang him from a tree, mate. But Lafitte says, "No, no. Listen, fellas. we'll uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna settle down. We're gonna have we're gonna hear these blokes out. We're gonna listen to what they've got to say. And I'm gonna so so give them to me. I'll take them back to my my, my place here in the bay, and uh, and and we'll see what they've got to say for themselves." So Johnny takes them back to his uh, you know his house. He posts guards outside the front to make sure that his guests remain safe, and he listened to uh, to the offer that the British put in front of him. The British officers had come to specifically meet with the Commandant of that were their, Those were their orders. And they made an offer to Lafitte and his men that involved generous land grants and British citizenship if they were to support the British against the Americans in the ongoing war. They wanted to mobilize these smugglers and these pirates against the United States. Now, we already know that John is a very clever bloke, and he played a very, very close hand here. Let me tell you, rather than just sell, tell the British yes or no straight away then and there, he bought time by saying that he had to have a think about it. Right? He said, "Thank you very much for the offer, gents. I will leave it with me, and I'll let you know. Give me a couple of weeks, and I'll be back with you. I'll be back with an answer for you. But you know, obviously, you've got to have a good old think about it." The British go, all right, mate, fine. Think about it all you want. But if you don't agree, let me tell you this. Our orders are to wipe Barataria and your smuggling port right off the map. So you go, ahead have, you go ahead and have a good old think about it there, old son, no worries at all. But if you say no, we'll be back with buddy cannons. Don't you worry about it. So here's the thing. Lafitte, right? He sits back. He thinks about it. He goes, Who do I, what do I want to do here? Do I want to throw in with the British? Do I want to go with you Americans? Do I want to keep out of it? How, what, what's the chop? How do I play this one? But he figures out, very quickly, in fact, that he doesn't want the British to win the war, and he doesn't want the British to establish a legitimate foothold in the Gulf of Mexico. He realizes that throwing in with the British, even with the citizenship, with the land grants, whatever else, is actually a very bad idea for him. Why? Because the size and the strength of the British Navy, their world-class naval force, Would absolutely obliterate his smuggling operation. The United States Navy at this point—remember this, right? It's ragtag, it's rinky-dink. It doesn't have the firepower, the resources to properly deal with the Lafitte operation. Whereas, of course, the British Navy—it's the best in the world. The smugglers would have no chance were they to were the British to you know start to, to to seize control of this of this part of the world. So, after receiving this offer and thinking it over, Lafitte actually here does something. So, so wild, considering, you know, everything else that he's done in his career as a pirate and a smuggler so far, he approaches the US authorities, including Governor Clybourne, the bloke who, you know, had the wanted poster, telling them about the British offer and stating his desire to actually fight for the United States rather than Britain in the war. Remember, this bloke's not American. He's French, right? And he approaches them as a French pirate and he says, all right, listen to me, you blokes. I'll fight for you guys because I want you to win because your navy's worse than theirs. And so I know that you'll be less of a threat to our smuggling operations. He probably didn't say that in the negotiations, but that was where he was coming from. He said, right, he said if, if he his brother and all of their associates were pardoned, he would muster his forces in the defence of the United States in the War of 1812, and all of these privateers, these pirate captains, would come to the aid of the embattled United States uh, Navy there. Jean made sure that everyone knew about his intentions. He wrote not only to head honchos like the governor, but also to lawmakers in in the Louisiana legislature, the ones, remember, who had been sympathetic to his cause, and he told them, he made it very clear that the United States had the opportunity to bring the Baratarians on side as, you know, as allies in this war, in the War of 1812, if only they pardoned and and released all of the people who had been captured or or imprisoned or charged previously, right? And at first, it looked very good for the Lafittes. Within a couple of days, Jean Lafitte, uh, within a couple of days of Jean sending these letters, Pierre escaped from prison. Oops, how clumsy of us. Can't pardon the bloke, but, you know, he goes and walks free anyway. He managed to get out of prison just a couple of days after. Very strange coincidence there. And then, shortly after this, the United States, obviously, you know, perhaps in response to the offer that was made by Jean Lafitte here, the United States mustered a small naval force and went and blew to bits. Yes, they uh, completely ignored this offer that uh, Jean had made to join forces with them and instead went and raided the smuggling operation uh, one final time and more or less completely destroyed it. They, uh, you know, rather than swell their ranks with these privateer, with these pirate vessels... Instead, they were having none of it and sent a schooner and six gunboats to Barataria. And after a hasty scramble to defend the port, the smugglers ended up realising they had no chance. So they set fire to their ships and they fled. And once again, the Lafitte's escaped. But 80 smugglers and the ships that they hadn't managed to destroy ended up being captured by the Americans. So they really did turn down the olive branch here, the US government. And that was the end of Barataria Bay. The once busy and bustling smugglers' haven was consigned to history by this U.S. raid. It would never, it would never regrow from the ashes again. But the story, the story of the Lafitte brothers, has still got a long way to go. Let me tell you this: there was a lot more sympathy from for these two men than you might have thought. You know, I mean, they are pirates. They're smugglers, and 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 they are broadly speaking on the wrong side of the law. Every way you look at them. However, there was a lot of sympathy for them. They'd come and made this offer of of, of helping the uh, the United States in their, in their hour of need, and in, in response, they'd had their entire operation shut down by the US Navy. This naval raid had been highly successful in uprooting the smuggling operation, but it also had obliterated a potential ally against the British. And in December, when the uh, nasty piece of work known as General Andrew Jackson rocked up in New Orleans to organise its vigorous defence against the British... He was none too pleased to find out how vulnerable the city was. I mean, you can hear all about this in Episode 9. And it's in that episode that I mention that he asked some of the local pirates to help out. And those local pirates are none other than the Lafitte's and the Baratarians. In fact, even before Jackson arrived, Governor Claiborne recognised that The raid actually might have been a bit of a mistake, and the United States, and particularly New Orleans, are in deep poop here, um, and he actually petitioned the federal government for a pardon for the Lafitte so they could be recruited. I mean, obviously, should should have taken up the offer when it was on the table, Clybourne, mate. Old son bit bloody late now, isn't it? He's bloody changed his tune, hadn't he? But now... The British are posing a dire threat. Again, you can hear about all this in Episode 9. The rule book's getting chucked out the window. Even Jackson himself, he doesn't want, he doesn't want to work with the pirates all that much, but he recognises that he has no choice. He's got all these ships, the ships that were captured in Baratari. They are going spare. He needs the men for them. And Lafitte's sailors are refusing, the captured ones or even the ones that have been released, they're refusing to work. They're refusing to work. They're pissed off about the raid. They're not happy with how their, their leaders have been treated. So Jackson, therefore he arranges a meeting with Jean Lafitte and he offers he and his men a pardon if they serve in the defense of New Orleans. And so Jean actually gets what he wants. Jean must have been like, mate, this is what I said at the beginning. This is what I said at the very beginning. In the first place, I said, we'll bloody fight for you, cloth-eared buffoon, if you give us the pardons. But sure, all right, mate, go on. Go on, go on then. All right, you organize the pardons, and we'll fight for, you, fight for you. Don't even worry about it. So, pardons are approved. Jean, he goes around mustering all of his former soldiers. He crews the captured ships and he uh, and he puts all of the extra men on the, you know, the ones that, because uh, the, obviously there weren't, some of the ships had been destroyed. So there, were, there was an abundance of crew members. He puts some of these extra crew members on the artillery batteries that you, you heard about in that, in that former episode, in the previous episode, episode nine. Now, Further to this, Jean also had a very meaningful say in the, def- in the naval defence of the city. He helped Jackson formulate uh, plans for the deployment of the organisation of ships. And when the battle began properly in late December, the Baratarians excelled themselves in the fight. They were amongst the most experienced fighters there, particularly on the artillery. Years on, a pir- years on pirate ships meant that these pirates were better cannoneers than even some of the attacking British forces. And they fought so well, so bravely, and, and, and excelled themselves so much that Jackson personally commended the Lafitte brothers and many of their followers for their roles in the battle. And, and several of the pirates were actually honoured amongst the, 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 the heroes of, the, battles of New, the Battle of New Orleans. The Battle of New Orleans obviously an incredible story in its own right, but the involvement of these reformed pirates makes it all the better. They were crucial in defending the city, and all of them, I'm happy to say, were rewarded with full clemency. As a result, the US government did stick to its word and all of the pirates, all of the smugglers, all of the privateers that took part in this battle as part of, you know, the deal that was brokered there by Jean Lafitte, all of them were offered and accepted, you would think, a full pardon. So it did take a while to uh, to get there, ultimately, with Jean, you know, double-crossing the English and offering his help and then having his base destroyed, then ultimately being brought back into the fold. But at the end of the day, uh, Jean Lafitte and uh, and his his pirate fleet did end up serving a very important role in a, in a decisive battle in in, United, in the United, history of the United States. But wait, there's more. We're still nowhere near finished, mate. Here We're still, There's still so many more adventures that I've got to tell you about from these, with these brothers. Do you remember me uh, describing at the beginning of the episode, I described them as spies when the episode began? That was one of the many titles that they earned throughout their lives. And there's a whole other chapter here, mate, because after the destruction of Barataria, after the Battle of New Orleans, Jean-Pierre, went into the service of another nation as spies. They became spies for the Spanish. Spain was fighting the Mexican War of Independence at this stage, and the brothers agreed to pass information along to the Spanish to aid them in this war. Now, Pierre, with an extensive network of contacts in, uh, as, a, you know, as a merchant in New Orleans, he stayed in the United States to, uh, to be a contact for the Spanish there while Jean instead was a, was a naval operative sent to Galveston Island, which was part of Spanish Texas. Now, the Spanish had heard stories that the island was being used as a base of operation for Mexican revolutionaries, and they, obviously they didn't want to go there and spook the revolutionaries sailing under the colours of Spain, so they sent Jean Lafitte as a spy, effectively, to this island to go and suss out the situation. So off he goes, and he arrives there in March 1817, sailing to Galveston Island, and sure enough, he finds a bunch of, uh, of, of Mexican revolutionaries there, led by a French nobleman, uh, which is not ideal for the Spanish. However, I don't know what happened. Honestly, this bloke is just a total lucksack, because within a couple of weeks of him arriving, couple of, uh, a couple of weeks of Jean arriving on Galveston Island, right, these revolutionaries packed up shop and left. And I wasn't able to find out why. I don't think it had anything to do with Jean and his arrival. I mean, if it did, he kept bloody quiet about it, because I couldn't find any explanation that involved him. It just seems that they just left, right? And Jean was very, very quick to exploit this, expo- uh, this situation here. He, he established himself as being in charge of the newly abandoned island. And, I mean, have a guess at what he turned it into. You know, he, he headed back to New Orleans, reported his success to the Spanish by way of Pierre, his co-spy. He said, I'll keep sending messages. Don't worry, I'll keep you appraised of the situation. What's going on in Galveston? But then he went back to the island, and worked on turning it into, you'll never guess, yep, Another base of operations for another smuggling racket. I mean, why, why mess with an established formula? He knew what he was good at. He knew how to do it. And Galveston was perfect. It had a large protected bay. It was only very sparsely populated by, by Native Americans. It was outside of the authority of the United States and generally away from most population centers. Because it was so remote, there weren't very many patrols. Not a lot of attention was paid to it. And so Jean Lafitte once again set up shop. He established a little colony of his own and it grew to have around 2000 people living there. He and he raked in a fortune as uh, as the as the leader of this of this smugglers port. He, you know, still paid lip service to the Spanish as a spy. Maybe you know he sent off message like, "Oh yeah, no nah, no revolution is here. Don't worry. Don't come and check. You don't need to come and see. just take my word for it, but uh, no, look, she's all she's all good at this end. Don't even worry about it, mate." Um Honestly, it looked like the Spanish had bigger fish to fry. They, they, you know, nothing really came of Jean's cruisy attitude towards his duty as a, duties as a spy. He, it was a very short lived career for him as a, as a you know an agent of espionage there. But what he did do on this island, he oversaw the construction of uh, of houses, other buildings, including a new uh, a big headquarters on the harbor, which was painted red. It became known as the Maison Rouge, and he called this new colony this bustling new prosperous smugglers colony. He called it Campeche and it became as prosperous as, as anything, really. There were pirates and smugglers and other ne'er-do-wells who were pouring in to offload their contraband, bringing wealth and riches into this small colony, and the richest of them all, of course, was Jean Lafitte, who lived in, in, in ostentatious wealth aboard his ship in port. He forged letters of mark and issued them to, uh, to you know, g- gave them all to his pirates, uh, to offer them a uh, the very thinnest veil of legitimacy as they went around attacking ships, and he continued to oversee and manage the colony until its annual income topped two million dollars. That is thirty-three million dollars today. Not bad for a self-made colony in the of, you know in the Gulf of Mexico there, and uh, you know with the aid of his brother back in New Orleans they. Uh, they brought in an absolute fortune for themselves and, uh, and, and lived, uh, lived in, in, in great opulence and great wealth for, uh, for a time. Although, I'm sorry to say, I'm, so, I'm very, very sorry to say that a lot of this wealth was generated by the slave trade, as the Lafittes really did not seem to have any scruples there. In 1818, the US banned the import of any new slaves into the country, but the law was very poorly written and it had several loopholes and the Lafitte brothers took full advantage of these legal loopholes. For example, um, if a if a slave ship were captured, so a slave ship couldn't land in a U.S. harbor and unload its cargo, but if a slave ship were captured, then the people, uh, the enslaved people on board it, would be turned over to U.S. customs and then sold. Sold, and half the profit from this sale would go to the sailors who turned them over. So if you're out in the sea, you capture a slave ship, you bring it back to the United States in 1818, um, the, the the slaves would still be sold, and you'd pocket half the profits. So what the Lafitte's did was they organized a racket where the pirate ships that they were in control of would hunt down slave ships capture them and then go back to the United States turn in the slaves only for another conspirator organized by Pierre to buy these slaves on behalf of the you know of the of the of the smuggler effectively paying half price because, of course, half the profit would be paid back to the smuggler anyway. So they then go and sell these, quote unquote, legal slaves at full price in in the markets of the Deep South. Very, very ordinary behaviour, obviously, despite the deaf manipulation of legal loopholes. And it made a lot of money. It made a lot of money because it was a way to, I don't know, under the veneer of legitimacy, bring slaves in in contravention of the 1818 regulations. And so in doing this, the Lafitte brothers profited quite handsomely off of uh, off of the, uh, the the buying and selling of uh, you know people who'd been enslaved. So they became very rich. They became very rich for, through this and, and other means, of course. But once again, their luck ran out, and it wasn't to last. In uh, the Kampesh colony was was obviously flourishing, prospering, bringing a lot of money through slaves and and other means as well. But it was almost completely ruined when a hurricane blasted through it, which flattened most of the buildings and killed several people. And even, you know, even if there were attempts to rebuild it, in May 1821, the Lafitte's and their smugglers had finally become too much of an issue for the U.S. to ignore. And so, an American schooner was dispatched to deal with Campeche. Obviously, once again, victims of their own success. For years, they've been smuggling slaves, they've been uh, bringing in contraband, and 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 you know, getting around all of the uh, all of the the laws that that managed and regulated imports and exports into U.S. harbours. And so as a result, the U.S. Navy sent a uh, a detachment off to to Galveston Island, off to Campeche, and uh, quite wisely, really, Jean Lafitte, he recognised which way the wind was blowing, and he agreed to pack up shop and leave the island without bloodshed. Rather than having it come to a fight, uh, he and his men, they burnt the remaining buildings to the ground, they carted all their treasure aboard the ship, and they sailed off. But it's not over yet. No, 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 because the Lafitte's still aren't finished. Even after losing their second smuggling uh, base of operations here, even after being turfed out of another smuggler's port, they're still not finished. This time, Jean decided that it was the pirate's life for him, and so he began to cruise around the Gulf of Mexico with the dodgy privateering commission, attacking and capturing ships of all nations. Once again, Pierre acted as a shoreside intermediary to sell off the plunder that Jean brought in, uh, while Jean dodged the increasing patrols along the U.S. coast. As even now, uh, the Louisiana lawmakers had actually had actually had enough of the uh, of the smuggling. The, the wind really had changed uh, on uh, on Jean, Jean and Pierre Lafitte here. Pierre died in 1821 while uh, Jean was uh, you know busy doing his pir- his piracy on the, throughout the Gulf here. And this made it difficult for Jean to continue his. To, to land all the contraband that he uh, that he captured from other ships in the, in the United States, but the show must go on, and so he briefly set up base in Cuba, but this didn't last. Cuba was a lot quicker off the mark in booting these pirates out, and uh, it wasn't long before Jean was uh, once again back at sea without an effective way to land his ill-gotten gains. But more broadly speaking, really, if you if you look if you sort of zoom out and look at this situation on a, on a wider historical level. This really is the end times for pirates and piracy of this kind in the Gulf of Mexico. Pirates like Jean Lafitte were on the way out as governments began to exercise a much tighter control over the waters that they, uh, you know, that they had jurisdiction on. And piracy of this kind, it was dying out. Uh, So much so, in fact, that in June 1822, Jean approached Gran Colombia under Simon, uh, Simon Bolivar, and he requested a commission to sail for the Colombians, and he was duly granted one too. Who's an experienced naval officer, a, a ship's captain that had, well, not in good standing, but he certainly had a, a, a wealth of uh, a wealth of experience under his belt. And so he was finally, after all these years, legitimised as a commissioned naval officer and given a fancy new schooner to sail around in. And funnily enough, as he went about, you know, on behalf of Grand Colombia it finally meant that he was legally allowed to attack other ships, particularly the Spanish, as Gran Colombia, of course, was at war with them. So after all these years of piracy, he 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 finally was in a position as a commissioned naval officer of Gran Colombia where he could go and attack and plunder and pillage ships with the law on his side at long, long last. But it wasn't to be for a very long time. wasn't to last, I'm afraid, because on the night of the 4th of February, 1823, Jean Lafitte spotted a couple of Spanish merchant vessels at sea and he thought, "Uh uh-huh, I'll have them. And he gave chase to these merchant vessels through the dark, through the cloudy night, hoping to plunder a rich bounty of Spanish silver from these ships. But when he caught up with them, he found out he suffered a very unwelcome surprise in finding out that the merchant ships weren't merchant ships at all. They were instead Spanish warships. And they turned to attack Jean and his Colombian schooner, with great ferocity. Finally, Jean had bitten off more than he could chew. He wouldn't be getting away with this one. After a lifetime of piracy, smuggling, roguery, chicanery and generally just getting away with it, Jean was fatally wounded in the battle and he died on the morning of the 5th of February and was buried at sea. Although even today there are rumours about him, you know, escaping this encounter and going on to to rescue Napoleon from exile before living with him in New Orleans. So, yeah, I mean, grain of salt and all that. Probably died in 1823, I'd say, but these rumours still persist. Lafitte was one of the very last pirates of the era in this region. Within a few years of his death, piracy had been all but wiped out in the Gulf of Mexico as various governments consolidated their sea power. But since then, Jean and Pierre Lafitte have gained a Near mythical status for their exploits and their adventures, and their lives really do make for a fascinating time. But that's it, that's all she wrote today sports fans, that is the story of Jean and Pierre Lafitte, the Lafitte brothers. Very, very famous pair of pirates they were, and... Certainly some of the stuff they got up to, you can uh, you can see why. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. And uh, once again, you know, it is so good to hear from listeners, have them send in suggestions. So I want to thank you. I want to say thank you to Jordan uh, uh, one final time for, for sending in the suggestion. If you've got a suggestion like Jordan, you want to get it through to me, please do. Halfoshistory.net, a contact form there you can use to, uh, to get in touch with the show. Always love hearing from people. So please send me through any feedback or topic suggestions you've got. And of course, if you want to support the show, Uh, patreon.com slash half us history best way to do that of course you can chuck me a couple of dollars a month or whatever and uh, get get a a range of benefits including the messy uncut episodes full of all my bloody burps and farts and whatever else so if that's the content you crave it is available for you at very competitive pricing my friends but thank you nonetheless uh, for listening to this dumb podcast week in week out so good to have your company of course and uh, i appreciate everyone who's going out and uh, spreading the good word of half us history thanks so much to those of you doing that As ever, we're going to close out the episode with a question posed on Reddit. This one asked by B-Town Bomb. It's to do with uh, Louisiana here. Maybe B-Town Bomb is hoping to uh, make a return here. I don't know. Maybe maybe take it back and get a refund because B-Town Bomb asks, did we keep the receipt from the Louisiana purchase?